It's great to see you all. Welcome. Um, if you're visiting with us, my name's Ian. I'm the minister of the church here. Uh, two or three weeks ago, we started a new series in the Old Testament book of Judges. Um, and we're going to carry on uh, with some thoughts uh, today. Um, last week, our talk was called Hollow Man. This week, I've entitled our time together. Are we on? Desperate Dan. Do you know, this week we've had new lights fitted and they are bright, aren't they? Can I, can I just turn one off? Is that better? Yeah. You can still see. And I, I think you'll see the screen better. Hollow Man and Desperate Dan. I like that just because it rhymes. Um, and because it might help you remember um, these chapters. Some of you will be old enough to remember a comic called Dandy. And Desperate Dan here was a character in Dandy. He used to enjoy eating cow pie with big horns sticking out. And he was a, he's a very strong fellow. Um, maybe there are similarities between him and the tribe of Dan in the Bible that we're going to read about today. The hollow man is Micah. Um, in chapter 17 of Judges and Desperate Dan is a whole tribe of hollow men that we're going to think about today in chapter 18 um, I actually wish last week we'd had time to do both these chapters together because they really hang together as one narrative and, uh, but we, we split them in two because we well we didn't run out of time last week but we've split them into two uh, sessions last week and today so hopefully we can learn some lessons from chapter 18 as we learned from chapter 17 last week however splitting into two gives me a slight bit of tension and problem because I'm aware that some of you weren't here last week and chapter 18 won't really make sense to you because you didn't hear what we talked about from chapter 17 um, also you might be wondering given that we've just started this series and Ian Fenton did chapter 1 and 2 why we're jumping to the end of the book um, to chapter 17 and 18 so let me just give you a very quick recap and then we'll get into our thoughts for today last week I tried to give you a context for the whole book of Judges this isn't working have you, have you done that eh? I'll just give you a nod and you do it um, the book of this period of history in the Old Testament is around 1000 BC and for the nation of Israel it represents a period in which they move from being a family of clans and tribes towards being a proper bona fide nation with kings and structure and laws uh, and all the rest of it so the book of Judges is a transition for, for them as a nation but it is a very dysfunctional period as their identity changes in a sense as they come of age this whole period was characterised by chaotic moral and religious failure it was not a glorious period in the history of Israel 
we've represented that by the downward spiral on the screen there it it was a really desperately messed up time these were not the good old days but rather the bad old days when Israel had no king and the whole point of the book in a way is to emphasise that they need a hero they need a leader they need a king who will govern them wisely unite them and help them to be a great nation the author is not neutral if you just look okay, if you've got one of the red church bibles we're on page 261 um, if you look at uh, chapter 17 and verse 6 um, the writer says in the middle of this narrative in those days Israel had no king everyone did as he saw fit and we, we looked at that last week everyone did what they felt was right in their own eyes there was no coherent story to unite them the reason we've jumped to the end is because the structure of the book is very interesting so let me just highlight this uh, give us another slide Ian. so here's the book of Judges there's a two part introduction in chapter 1 and 2 Ian Fenton looked at that um, and then you've got uh, a number of chapters in the middle that are chronological history the reason the book's called Judges is because all the different leaders were known as Judges they weren't kings, they, they were just known as Judges um, so this bit is the chronological sequence of all these different leaders you might have heard of Samson, Gideon some of them are less well known but there they are in, in the history the, the, the writer is really getting into a helicopter and flying over that history to give us an overview of what happened over this period but when you get to the end the last few chapters 17 to the end are not chronological it's almost like an appendix or an epilogue and the writer what I said last week was that if, if, if chapter 3 to 16 are a helicopter overview in chapter 17 the writer lands the helicopter and he invites us to come into the story to see something of how bad things really were give us another two or three slides eh? here we go so the introduction tells us why things went wrong the history part tells us what happened the epilogue at the end that we're jumping to now tells us a little bit about how bad they're, they're the writer's examples let me tell you some stories that show you just how bad things were while all this stuff was going on so we're in the middle of looking at the first part of this epilogue the, the epilogue's in two parts as well and if you give me another slide the, the two things the writer's trying to tell us at the end is during this whole period of history Israel was mixed up in its religion and very messed up in terms of its morality that's the two part of the, of the epilogue so what we're in the middle of chapter 17 18 is the first bit of that mixed up religion that's what we're trying to uh, see that's the basic plot let's uh, move on one eight Sorry. there we go so Micah the hollow man 
the hollowness of idolatry. Basically, in chapter 17, Micah is the kind of chap who thinks that God can be whatever he wants him to be. He, he just makes up a version of God in his own imagination and worships that. that that's Micah. And, and as we'll see today, what he ends up with, because of that, is actually no God at all. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. And I, I think, I don't know about you, the word idolatry might make you think about some prehistoric tribe of pagan savages dancing around totem poles or something, I don't know. Idolatry. But idolatry isn't essentially bowing down to some totem pole or statue. Idolatry is the idea that we can substitute the true God for something else that we think is better than he is. Or if we want to be more subtle, idolatry can be the idea that we maybe, we, we don't so much substitute God for something, but we, we try to combine worshipping him and worshipping something else at the same time. Last time we saw that the reason Micah did this, the reason people in the past did this, the reason we do it today, is because deep down what we really want is to be able to tame God, to control him and manipulate him. We actually don't want a God who is inconvenient or who makes, makes demands of us. We would rather shape God in our own image than let the living God shape us in his image. Does that make sense? But the great tragedy for Micah and for us is that when we try to shape our own gods, we end up with none. If we replace God with something else, if we try to recreate God according to our own desires, opinions, feelings, what we end up with is nothing. The gods we invent in an effort to control and manipulate them are not the real thing and in the end they will evaporate and disappear and disappoint us. When we try to hollow God out as Micah does in chapter 17 we ourselves actually end up becoming hollow. God is a shadow of what he really is and we become a shadow of what we're meant to be. At the end of chapter 17, Micah thinks that in religious terms he's made it. Look at verse 13 of chapter 17. Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. He thinks he's in God's team. Rather, he thinks God's in his team. <laughs> I've made it. God's going to look after me. Everything's rosy in the world. But in chapter 18, it all begins to fall apart. So, what we're going to try and do then, that's a little background for you. If you were here last week, if you were here last week, I'm really sorry because you heard all that last time. 
But now you know where we're up to. Chapter 18 is the story of how for Micah it all begins to disintegrate. I've got three things for you to notice. And uh, the reason we haven't read it so far is that what we'll do is we'll read a bit at a time and then we'll talk about it. Because it's quite a long chapter. So if you're with me in the Bible there, page 261, we'll just read Judges 18 and we'll just read down for a bit and then stop and talk for a bit, okay? So let's hear God's word. Uh, The writer says here, In those days Israel had no king. And in those days the tribe of the Danites, that's where we get desperate Dan from, you see? See what we did there? The tribe of the Danites were seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five warriors from Zorah and Espeol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all their clans. They told them, go explore the land. The men entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah where they spent the night. And when they were near Micah's house, they recognised the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for him and said, He has hired me and I am his priest. Then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. So the five men left and came to Laish where they saw that the people were living in safety like the Sidonians, unsuspecting and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. And also they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. We'll leave it there. So chapter 18 begins with that same phrase, In those days Israel had no king. That is the point that the writers tried to make. The reason they're messed up is because everyone's just doing their own thing. He said it in 17 verse 6. We read that a moment ago. He says it again in chapter 19 verse 1. And if you flick right to the end of the book, it's the very last verse of the whole book. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And I said to you last week that even though this is written centuries ago, this verse kind of sums up our modern culture, doesn't it? This could be today's paper, the Sunday Times or whatever it is. Everyone does what feels right to them. That's what was going on. If it feels good, it must be fine. If something works for you, that's cool. (laughs) Might not work for me, but if it works for you, that's your choice. And everyone basically does what feels right for them. There is no absolute. Everything is subjective. Relative. It's up to each individual person to find their own truth and do what feels right for them. The interesting thing about this book is that the author is pinning his hope on kings being good kings. For a time, some of Israel's kings were good. But actually, in the end, many of their kings were 
brutal, godless, self-serving. And they did not lead the nation to worship God. And it fell apart, ultimately, even worse than it does in the book of Judges later. But at this point, the writer is like, what we need is a king. It is pretty amazing that this kind of stuff's in the Bible. What this is all pointing to is a greater king than Israel's king or kings. A king who was yet to come. A king who would not be greedy, corrupt or brutal. A king who would actually have the best interests of his subjects at heart. A king who would rule with justice and courage and yet with mercy and compassion. This whole sorry period in Israel's history actually points to the ultimate king, not to broken human politics, but it points to the ultimate king who comes much later in the story the Lord Jesus himself, he, he is the true king that this story is kind of reaching out for and grasping for and looking for. We'll come back to that later. What about desperate Dan? So Dan was one of the twelve sons of Jacob. And the twelve sons of Jacob became the twelve tribes of Israel. And here the tribe of Dan, the Danites, are still looking for a place to live. This is uh, interesting. Here, here's the deal. We'll, we'll have another slide here. Desperate Dan, the tribe who would not listen. Here's the deal. God had told all of the tribes to take possession of their allotted part of the promised land, Canaan. They divided it all up and each tribe had to go and take possession of their bit. And that involved having courage and there was a bit of sweat involved to drive out the pagan nations that were already there. That was partly God's judgment on the brutality of the pagan nations who were living there. But it was also a great promise to the tribes of Israel. Most of the tribes made a decent fist of securing their portion of the land except the tribe of Dan. So here they are in chapter 18. The Danites were seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. They're wandering like nomads. Why? Because they hadn't done the thing that God had told them to do at the beginning. They're still wandering about here looking for somewhere to live because they haven't done what God told them to do. I, there's a song, isn't there, by you 2 where I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I just imagine the Danites wandering about you know, we still haven't found what we're looking for. They, they, they had a land that God told them to claim. And here they are like nomads. 
One writer says this, As their numbers increased and they needed more space, being unprepared for the hard work of obedience, which meant conflict, they chose their own apparently easier alternative and it seemed to work. In fact, they won an easy victory. But it had devastating long-term effects. Their very remoteness from the other tribes led them further into idolatry. But that didn't show up at first. In the short term, they undoubtedly congratulated themselves that they were onto a good thing. They felt comfortable, settled at peace. But actually, they were totally disobedient. Just go with me uh, back to chapter 1. Just keep your finger there. In chapter 1 and verse 34, it says there that the Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. In other words, God said to the Danites, Go and take the land. And they really didn't want to do the hard work of doing that. And the Amorites basically won. And so the Danite tribe, instead of claiming their inheritance, are wandering around up in the hills like nomads. Another writer says, they suffer the case of restlessness and alienation because they have not obeyed God. This is the tribe that failed. Their story is one of knowing what they should have done, but never having the courage quite to do it. And therefore being condemned or confined to this helpless nomadic wandering. Dan was the tribe that wouldn't listen to God. But it gets worse. Let, let's, um, we'll, we'll read on. The tribe sends five warriors to find somewhere, anywhere, for them to settle and call their own home. And they actually set out from a place where Samson later lives. Do you recognise the name Samson? He was the super strong guy with the long hair who fell in love with Delilah. He was a Danite. It's interesting that. Maybe he was the original desperate Dan. I don't, I don't know. He was a strong guy, wasn't he? Maybe he, maybe he ate cow pie. I don't know. But um, they, they, they set out from the very place where Samson later lived. And they come eventually to Micah's house. And while they're there, they hear a man with a strange accent. I, I can't help but thinking of Scouse here. I don't know why. But as they're going down past Micah's house, they hear someone chirping away in an accent... So I, I don't know, this guy, maybe he was a scouser or a Jody or something, I don't know. And they recognised from his accent that he was a Levite, not a scouser. When they heard him talk, they were like, hang on a minute, he's a Levite, isn't he? The significance of that is that God had said that the tribe of Levi were the priests for the whole nation. And we saw last week that this guy, that wasn't good enough for him. And like Dick Whittington, a scouse Dick Whittington, he sets out from his home, seeking his fame and fortune somewhere else. 
But, and the dance, the dance spies are surprised when they get to Michael's house and they hear this guy chirping away. They're like, what's the Levite doing here? Is he not meant to be being a priest in his own county? There's a theme here. This Levite, too, is meant to listen to God and do the job of being a priest in his home county in the way God had told him and his tribe to do. And he goes off seeking his fame and fortune somewhere else. And he comes to Micah's house in chapter 17 and Micah thinks, wow, a priest has arrived. God must be on my side. And he gives him food and lodgings in return for the guy becoming his own personal priest. Micah too is meant to worship the living God and ends up building his own little temple with his own priest who isn't listening to God either and actually takes that as a beautiful sign that God's working things out for him as we saw in verse 13. Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has come... but when the Levite knocked it, you can imagine, we said last week, Mike is, I don't know, going to sleep one night with his wife, and he, it's more than a coincidence, this love. <laughs> I mean, he's a Levite, he's a priest. Fancy that, fancy him coming and knocking on our door. It's a sign from God. He thinks that God is with him because of these circumstances. Now, in chapter 18, a whole tribe who aren't listening to God either come to Micah's house and hear the priest's accent and they're like, you a priest? Give us a sign from God then. Are we going to be successful in our mission? Go and pray to God for us. So now you have a whole tribe asking a fake priest in a fake temple for fake advice. It's unbelievable. Talk about the blind leading the blind. And no one, not Micah or the Levite or the Danites, ever stopped to ask, what does God think? It is amazing, isn't it? How much all of these people who really did know better, how much they trust their own opinions, feelings, and thinking while thinking that somehow God is irrelevant or stupid. God has told them what to do and they're like, yeah, that'll never work. We'll, we'll just make it up ourselves as we go along. And the irony is that Micah thinks God's pleased with them. The Levite priest thinks he's won the lottery. The Danites... Danites, 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 they seek God's approval. And in the next section, as we'll see, they think that they're getting the thumbs up and that they've got God's approval to go and slaughter the unsuspecting people who live in Laish. They plan to kill a whole load of people in a part of the land that was nothing to do with them on the basis of flaky advice from a dodgy priest in a fake shrine. They're restless because they're not listening and their problem is their utter neglect of God's own word. 
They are making it up as they go along. They knew God's word. Maybe they, sing, maybe they say things like, oh, God didn't really mean that. I mean, he might have meant it then, but he, things change. How, how can we know it was really God speaking anyway? Maybe some religious geek made this stuff up. Who knows? They seem to know deep down that there is a God, but then just guess how they, can, how they should relate to him. And it's all based on their subjective feelings. Listen, when we stop listening to God, we may as well turn the light off. These people are restless and floundering and stumbling around in the dark and the only thing they've got to guide them when they turn the light off is their own subjective impulses. Everyone did what they felt was right. And all the while, they're digging deeper and deeper holes to fall into. The tribe who would not listen. Here's the second thing I want you to see. The minister who served himself. This is a scary one for me, isn't it? Oh. You, you can't relax, though, because supplies to all of us the ministry served himself where did, where did we get to then verse 7 let's break in back at verse 8 then so the five spies go back home when they returned to Zora and Estiol their brothers asked them how did you find things they answered come on let's attack them We've seen that the land is very good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go there and take it over. When you get there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands. A land that lacks nothing whatever. A spacious land that God has put into your hands. They believed they were on a mission that God had approved. Because the dodgy priest has told them it's okay. Then 600 men, verse uh, 11. 600 men from the clan of the Donites, armed for battle, set out from Zor and Estiol. On their way, they set up camp near Kiriath Jerim in Judah. This is why the place west of Kiriath Jerim is called Manahay Dan. That means the camp of Dan to this day. From there they went on to the hill country of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their brothers, Hey, there's a scouse who lives here. We know him. Oh, it doesn't say that in the Bible. Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, other household gods, and a carved image and a cast idol? Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The six hundred Danites, armed for battle, stood at the entrance to the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the carved image, the ephod, and the other household gods and the cast idol, while the priest and the six hundred armed men stood at the entrance to the gate. The desperate Danites, they come back this time with a small army. And they all arrive at Micah's house and the five warriors are like, hang on a minute, we know the guy lives here. There's a guy here who has a shrine and his own priest. And they know what to do. The five guys go inside while their 600 mates wait outside and they steal 
the content of the shrine that Mike has made. And the priest is like, what are you doing? What on earth are you doing? Nicking all our stuff. And the answer that they give is quite profound. Verse 19. They answer them, be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as a priest rather than just one man's household? Then the priest was glad. He took the ephod, the other household gods, and the carved image and went along with the people, putting their children, their little children, their livestock and their possessions in front of them. They turned away and left. Their answer... The priest, the, the scouse Levi, you know, the, the, he's like, what are you doing nicking all our stuff? And what they say to him is, come on, wouldn't you rather be a priest for a tribe than just for one family? Don't think of it as a theft. This is a promotion, mate. We're not robbing. Come with us. We'll pay you more. You'll have more people to minister to. It's going to be great. And in a flash, he's like, that is a really good point, that. It says, he was glad. He was glad. Here is a spiritual leader who will lead whoever will pay him the most cash. He tells them what he wants them to hear. He doesn't care for Micah and his family. He doesn't really care for the Danites. He just goes where he thinks he'll be the most popular and get the best deal. One writer says this, in his own life and on his own terms, he has achieved dizzying heights, running the worship for an entire tribe of God's chosen people, yet it is hollow worship which only knows the God of self-promotion. Don't you think that the Bible is utterly realistic about human nature? It's not a pretty picture. It is very depressing, really. These are God's own people. This is the 12 tribes of Israel. These are the people that Moses brought out of Egypt. They had the Ten Commandments. And this is what they've come to. Totally mixed up. Let me just give you a couple of the striking things to mention here. I said last week that we would find out who this Levite guy is. Do you remember that? Those of you who were last week. Up to this point, the author doesn't tell us his name. He just calls him a Levite. When we get down to the end of chapter 18, verse 30, the Danites set up for themselves the idols, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idols Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. Do you know who this Levite was? Moses' grandson. 
Moses' grandson. It's not Dick Whittington, but the grandson of the greatest leader that Israel has had up to this point. The one who led them out of Egypt and brought them to the cusp of the promised land. His own grandson is basically selling his services to the highest bidder. You would think if anyone would know better, it would be him, wouldn't you? It's so shocking, actually. Here's a thing for you. In later versions of the Bible, there is a text of the Old Testament, but this is before the days of printing, when people copied it by hand, that some scribe was so embarrassed that he changes one letter of the name Moses, and by changing one letter, he changes the name to the name Manasseh. He was a very wicked king of Israel. It's like he's thinking, we can't taint Moses' memory. And he deliberately changes the, by one letter to make it look like he's not Moses' grandson. That's how shocking it is. What on earth happened to him within a generation or two? He has totally lost the plot. I, I don't know. What, what's the application of that to us? I think one of the things it says to us is that you and I cannot rely on some kind of pedigree or status with God. You can't really say, oh, my granddad was Moses. I'm in God's team. You can't say, oh, my dad was the minister. God must really love me. The point here is that every person, every one of us, stands before God on our own you can't rely on something else you can't rely on past exploits of someone else in your family some of you here have Christian parents that doesn't make you right with God it is entirely possible that despite their faith that you may want to strike out like this guy did, looking for something better. Whatever that might be. In the end, it is you and God. Not you and your granddad. Or your mum and dad. Jonathan. Moses' grandson. I just one, one other thing before we do a third point is, amazingly, I want you to notice that all this starts with Micah's mum. Do you remember meeting Micah's mum last week? Oh, love, come here. Why don't you make a little shrine? It'll be lovely. Here's 200 shekels. Go down to Silversmith and get him to make a little idol. It affects the Levite guy who's looking for his own reasons, but gets sucked into this little cult. Next thing you know, the whole tribe of Dan fall for it. And all of this lasts for 300 years. In chapter 18, verse 30, until the captivity of the land that came a few centuries later. This whole thing started in the mind of Micah's mum. And it spreads and grows like a cancer that lasts for years and the roots are manky and rotten. It's amazing, isn't it, how little things can affect a person, a family, even a culture. 
And that's something for us to notice as well. Okay, third thing I wanted you to notice before we begin to wrap up is the tribe that would not listen, the minister who saved himself, and the man who lost everything. Let me just reiterate some of the things we said about Michael last week. He makes his little gods. He thinks God is on his side, and then the day nights come and rob him and nick all his gods. They're too powerful and too strong for him. Just read with me verse 22. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. And as they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? That you called out your men to fight? They're ready, aren't they? The Danites answered, Don't argue with us. Oh, sorry, that I've missed a verse. He replied, verse 24, You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. And here's the phrase, What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? What else do I have? It's very poignant, that verse. And the Danites answered, don't argue with us or some hot-tempered men will attack you and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned round and went back home. I think that's one of the most poignant little passages of scripture it's interesting that the Danites are so superstitious they don't really seem to care whether God is real or not they just want the good luck charm of a little shrine to help them on their way Micah chases them down the road and the Danite warriors are like what do you want? and Micah has to say what else do I have? I've nothing left this is my life I thought everything was going to end happily ever after. And the Bible says here that Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned away and went back home. Do you see? He made his own gods and they couldn't even protect themselves, let alone him. He makes it all up in his imagination. He deceives himself into thinking that he's fine and he ends up with what? Nothing. He's a shadow. Hollow, empty. There's nothing there of any substance. I've nothing left. What else do I have? Everything he had put his trust in evaporated. Listen, the point is here that actually we are all worshippers of something. We may not be, it's likely that we are being in church on a Sunday afternoon, but we, we may not be religious. But when we rely on something or someone to give us what we think we really need, satisfaction, fulfilment, whatever it is, 
we are treating that thing like our functional saviour. That thing will be like a mini-god to us. We'll cherish it and love it and live for it and serve it. So the question for us is, what is the thing that you are living for? Here's something for you to think about. What one thing, if it was taken from you, would make life itself seem that it wasn't worth living? What would make you say, like Micah said, what else do I have? I've got nothing left. What these stories are teaching us is that in the end, there is only one God who will never be taken away from us. There is a God who can look after himself and look after you. There is a God who can and will and does satisfy the very deepest yearnings of your heart. He will never disappoint you. He will never be snatched away from you. He will never let you down in the moment of crisis. Many years later, in this same land, Jesus himself was speaking with his close friends. He'd been preaching to the crowds and he'd said some difficult things and many people were starting to think, oh, oh, this, this is a bit hard for me, this. And in John's Gospel we're told that people began to stop following Jesus because it just felt too difficult. And Jesus turns to his close friends and he says to them, what about you? Do you want to leave as well? The crowds that were flocking are now flocking away. Do you want to leave as well? And one of them, called Peter, said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter is saying to Jesus what Micah said to the Danites. Who else do we have? What else do we have? Where else would we go? You're enough for us. It might be hard, but we're staying here with you. Isn't this an amazing narrative? It is so realistic and true to our human nature, but in the end the whole Bible is pointing us toward what Peter knew in the New Testament, that there is a God who loves us all despite our rebellion, our selfishness, our pride. I framed my headings this way partly because they highlight Jesus. As we close, just let me give you this to reflect on. Give us another slidey. Jesus willingly lost everything. Jesus is the God who created everything and yet came into this world to be born as a man and he gave everything away. 
He came and climbed into our shoes and he did it to pay off our debts, not his own. He laid down his life to save our lives. He suffered the consequences of our sins. We might say he took the rap in our place. On the cross, we're told that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus came and walked into that storm and lost everything so that you and I could be restored and healed and forgiven. What that shows, Ian, give us another slide, is that Jesus is the, really the true minister who saves others rather than serving himself. Jesus is the ultimate friend. He's the one really who has your best interests at heart. And he proves it by loving you enough to die. He is the God who is not hollow or cheap or disappointing, but real and rugged and courageous. And the question for all of us, as it was for these guys, is what will you do? What will you do? My first heading here was the tribe that would not listen. And I think my last slide is a question. Are you listening? This tribe, desperate Dan, they were wandering restless and confused because they would not listen the question for all of us in our hearts is will you will you listen to Jesus in all the other noise that goes on in life and there's a lot of it will you hear his voice speaking to you and calling you by name his voice is the voice that transcends history sometimes we sing his voice is the voice that spans the years he is the ultimate king that you and I need in Matthew's gospel chapter 11 Jesus says these words come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls he lost everything and serves others not himself will you come and obey him will you come and trust him and maybe even today start to follow him and submit to him as your ultimate king finding his rest and peace Amen, Amen.